Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Venice. I'm your presenter. And today we're talking all things leaders within the industry. And I'd like to welcome you all to Maxine Bradley. Welcome, Maxine, to the show. Hey, James. How are you doing? It's nice to be here. Thanks for asking me to be along. No, not at all. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners, Maxine, exactly who you are, where you come from and what title you hold. Yeah, so... Um... I work at Northumberland Zoo. Me and uh, my mum and dad have built and managed Northumberland Zoo right up in the middle of nowhere in the great county of Northumberland. Uh, So we've got a great catchment audience. There's Edinburgh Zoo, like an hour and a half north, uh, Yorkshire Wildlife Park, two and a half hours south. So we've got a a lovely little niche in the beautiful countryside. Absolutely. From the outside, a really exciting collection, up and coming, and hopefully some great times ahead for you, as I'm sure there will be. Now, going back to your career, your journey so far, Maxine, no one generally just strolls into a position. No one generally is lucky enough to simply be handed a a free pass. Everyone builds to where they are today. Everyone has that journey, those keystone moments, and I guess those key memories behind why they're in the position they're in today. Do you have them? Are, Are those there for you? Yeah, goodness me. Well, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of luck in there, but it was a complete accident. You know, this was not ever meant to happen. I went and I got my degree in, in animal management at Ask and Brian, which is a, a cracking college. Um, and before I finished my degree, I had a job lined up at Chester Zoo. And I was one of those people who was like, I really want to be a tiger keeper. And obviously that does not happen. You don't just walk into a collection and suddenly start running around with tigers. But I got in into the education side of things, but it was a foot in the door. And meanwhile, while I was away uh, studying and, and working at Chester, my parents were back up north and they had a little like tea room. And uh, we used to have a different business where we we made beef jerky. So we were the largest UK producers of beef jerky. And when they had their little gift shop thing, people would come down and they would buy beef jerky and then they would leave. And it was really sad. So my parents got like a coffee machine and people would buy beef jerky and, and get a coffee and then leave. And again, it was just really, really sad. So then they knocked a little hole in the wall and built a little conservatory and made a little tea room. And that extended people's stay by about 10 minutes. And then they got four chickens and they got two donkeys and then they got two goats. Next thing they got meerkats. And and meanwhile, I was away down working at Chester, working as a experienced presenter keeper was the role at the time. And that was basically doing all the encounters, which was an incredibly challenging job. I think in the the two and a half years that I did it, I did like 1500 encounters and it's the most challenging position to be in because every single day, multiple times a day, you've got to be like the happiest, most excited person in the world to go and feed penguins every day at two o'clock. And I don't even like penguins, you know what I mean? So having to find that enthusiasm and work with the public in that way was really like sucked it out of me. And while I was at Chester, there was a job came up on the twilight section to work with the bats and the bears and the sloths and the red pandas. So obviously I went for that and I got that job. But after four years, my parents had collected numerous animals. You know, they'd they'd phone me up and they'd be like, oh, Maxine, we've got wallabies today. And we've got tortoises now. And then they got to the point where it was like, oh, we're really, really tired, you know, and and there's people keep coming and we don't know what to do. And now the council are contacting us saying we need a zoo license. Um, You know, we really need your help. 
So I made the decision, left Chester Zoo, moved back up north in 2014, and we got a zoo license in 2015. And then it was like, well, we've got a zoo license now. We might as well uh, build zoo. You know what I mean? It was just like, it wasn't like a, a process of events of let's build a zoo. It was just kind of like, oh, we've got a zoo license now. We might as well do something with it, you know? Just mental. Wow, what a journey. You're living everyone's childhood dreams. Every zookeeper playing in those early days, the likes of Zoo Tycoon, creating their own zoos. Even in the modern day, those grown-up children effectively are now playing the likes of Planet Zoo and are still creating their very own zoos. And you're living the dream. You're doing it in real life and something which, I say, a lot of us aren't able to do. So absolutely amazing. No, I mean, it is really unusual. And I do get really like worried talking about it because I feel like people are like, oh gosh, she's daddy's girl daddy will build her anything and it's like do you know what though like I didn't I didn't ask for that and I didn't really expect it it just kind of happened because it was like that's what we had to do in order to keep those animals that we had we had to have a zoo license if we wanted people to look at them you had to have a license and then it was like well we've got a license now maybe we should get something else and then it just kind of went from there and then visitor numbers just shot up immensely you know we went from like twelve thousand the first year to 30 odd thousand the next year so like over double and that's just representative of this area that there's no other zoos in this area you know this distinct lack of education in the northeast of england of visitors and wildlife they're very disconnected so there's a huge hole we are filling and obviously now we've uh, gained uh, entrance to the, the Snow Leopard Stud book and obviously Livingston Fruit Bats more recently. So, you know, we've we've come a really long way. And obviously I, I can't see what it's like looking in, but I know that we are we're very proud to be where we are now. But when I look back at it, I just think, what on earth happened? <laughs> no, absolutely. You are truly living the dream. And I think that's a great message to the whole industry. And, and that's that take your opportunities as they come. I'm a firm believer that, Luck doesn't really exist. It's right place, right time. But you put yourself in those positions. You know, you make your own luck and effectively you push yourself through your career and you're doing exactly that, which is great, great to see. Yeah, no, definitely. And the way that I want our collection to develop is basically by looking at what habitats and areas we have on offer. So we've got a, like a lovely little kind of 20 acres, 27 acres of land here with mixed habitats, trees, rivers, hills, flat bits. So we choose our animals based on what we can provide them with. So I'm not, and you can like quote me on this, I will not be getting lions and tigers and giraffes as much as my dad really wants giraffes. We will get animals that are suited to this climate and these habitats so that, you know, we're not fighting against mother nature. You know, we're, we're trying to fulfill a sustainability objective here. And by providing 30 degrees heating year round for an animal that's from Africa just seems a bit stupid. So that's kind of our ethos. Totally sounds very, very exciting. And as I said at the start, only good times ahead. Now, looking back at that career then so far and, and what you've learned from that, do you have any advice maybe for your younger self or someone listening in to what you've learned and what you can take from it and passing on those little tips those little glimmers of wisdom that you've developed oh, do you know what it's really tricky um i had a college group in this in in the zoo the other day and they were asking you know the same question and i said you know you really need to mentally prepare yourself for this industry and it's hard number one rule is to have confidence in yourself everyone has done a degree everyone has done so much to do such a low paid position you know and don't let yourself be beaten up or taken advantage of by others in the industry who 
I've been in it for longer. Have confidence in yourself and know that if it's something that you really want to do, you can do it. And I've said that all along. Like I was like, when I was a kid, I want to be a zookeeper. And I was like, great, I'm a zookeeper now. Even when I was at college, my my college tutor told me, he said, you'll never be a zookeeper. And that rung in my head so much. And he said, because of the competition. And that was it. Because he said that to me, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to go. I'm definitely doing this now. You know, and it's like, don't listen to what other people say. If you believe it's strong enough, just just do it. But, you know, you, you do get beaten down some days. You've got to be mentally prepared for this industry and mentally prepared. You know, it's tough. And, and if I if we had the choice all over again, like, you know, if we rewind back to 2014 and it's like, shall we apply for the Sioux license or not? If I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done, you know, because it is it has been incredibly stressful. And mine and my parents relationship is never the same. We all cannot have the same time off. We can never sit and talk about other things that families talk about. It's always like, oh, what do we do about this member of staff? Or what should we do with this money? And how do we manage this? And it's always work, 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 you know? So I think if if I could, I would probably go back. But, you know, not saying that I would do anything with the zoo now. It is what it is. And it's cracking. You know, we have done really well. But yeah, just to, to be strong, I think, is the main thing. Some really great advice there, Maxine. I think exactly that determination is really key through this industry. And if you are determined and want to go for something, as long as you stay determined, you will get there. It just takes time. So some really, really great advice. Now, looking at it from a different perspective, then more of a management level, it can get overwhelming at times. It can get on top of you. Obviously, managing a team through to managing a collection, it is a whole bundle of things and it is a quite a large aspect and a quite a large role to take on what would you say how how do you manage it how do you cope with it all what tips do you have oh, i don't know james i don't know the answer to that and the reason why i don't know the answer is because i'm constantly on the losing end of that battle it is really really challenging the things that keep me going literally is our staff's optimism like we have so many staff walking around so happy to be there and that makes me feel better because it's like, you know, we made this and now that's really greatly impacted their lives. Like this is their life as well as ours. And that that's a huge responsibility and immensely proud that we've created somewhere for these people to have a career. You know, so knowing that we've got like 30 odd people relying on us definitely gets us up in the morning. But, you know, it's just those little career wins when we, you know, when you join, you get accepted into a stud book, you know, and you get access to a really, really special species like the bats that we've recently got, the Livingston fruit bats. We're the only UK collection that has them. And to actually hold, you know, almost 20% of the population here in Northumberland, and it's a breeding group as well, is just like, oh, wow, we did that. You know, and that's that's what keeps us going. But it, it is hard. Yeah, for sure. Some really, really great advice there. And I think linking in with that perfectly, it, even though, yes, at times it can be overwhelming, you, you will make mistakes. You will have to sadly learn from them and you will have to improve as a person, but also in the industry to further yourself, further your own animal welfare and, and to better your animal's welfare. And that's something no one likes being told or likes truly evolving from because we all want to be the best we can be for our animals. So I guess the question going alongside this, Maxine, is how have you learned to grow from your mistakes? How have you learned from them and how have you embraced them to be the person and the, the figure you are in the industry? Oh, it's tricky. Learning learning by your mistakes is the worst kind of learning. <laughs> you know, it's literally you've got to stay positive and you've got to be optimistic and you've got to surround yourself with a, with a team that know what they're doing. That is literally in a nutshell because it's I've seen it so many times before where 
you know, it goes the other way and it goes south, you know. So it is literally like you've got to have the right team. They mean everything. And when your team are happy, that means the animals is happy. And when animals is happy, that means the visitors is happy. And the animals are breeding. And that means more visitors and more team are happy. So the team are the be all and end all. Maxine, you're making my life very, very easy. And that is because you've led us perfectly into that next question. And that is the building of a team, as you've just touched on. It is so important. It is the the blood. It's the life behind your collection it's the real reason we have our true successes in the industry is because of those amazing figures those amazing personalities which thrive throughout the industry the question i've got alongside this for you is what do you look for when employing a keeper and i guess for anyone listening in what can they do to be a better keeper for northumberland for yourself and to make them employable at your quite amazing collection that's a really good question um me and my head keeper, uh, Lucy, have two slightly different opinions on this. I look at cover letters. I love cover letters. They're the bit where I learn a bit more about the person. I learn about what's their ambitions, what they're looking for, just more about their character, trying to get a feel for them. And obviously look at their experience history as well. You know, the more kind of experience they've had in multiple collections helps. But obviously when we're when we're hiring a, like a, a keeper kind of on the on the basic level, you know, we, we don't always look for loads and loads and loads of stuff because, you know, it, it's tricky. You know, you're never going to get in the industry if you don't get a chance. So cover letters mean a lot to me. I like to know people's stories. Um, whereas my head keeper, Lucy, she's like, I never read the cover letter. I just throw it out and just look at the CV. And it's like, wow. OK, so that's quite different. Uh, I just found that quite surprising. But as far as like uh, skills and stuff, if I can get a good feel for the person and they seem quite sensible, you know, that's what I go for. But, you know, some of the things like firearms and and doing mock rock and and doing other things like that, like you can't expect these people to to have those skills. You know, that's the kind of stuff they learn when they're with you um, and when they're at the zoo starting to go. So, yeah, I, I would say just making sure their CVs are really good, making sure they have had experience, you know, kind of volunteering here, there and there and, and, and proving that they have the dedication to be in the industry. Now, it is really unfair because obviously the amount of hoops you've got to jump through in order to get a base level keeper position is heartbreaking. I mean, I've been there myself. I know what it's like. But the problem is, is that there's so many people want to do this job and we've almost done ourselves out of money and out of this position because there's just if you don't want to do it, there's a hundred other people that will do it. And it is the wrong mentality from a manager's position because I know that gets thrown around. You know, it's kind of like, well, if you don't want to do it, I'll get someone else in because there will be a queue waiting as soon as you leave. And that's not that's not a very good outlook. So it's just think if if someone really wants to work in a zoo, they'll just keep trying and just keep applying. And if, you know, if they're still applying and, and if they're not getting them through the doors, you know, they just need to keep volunteering and just adding little bits to their CVs just to make them stand out. But I really like to know people and, and see if they fit in with our story. Some very interesting words from you, Maxine. I'm sure our listeners will be listening to you on every word you're saying, some great, great stuff. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, Maxine, and that is the age-old question. It's something chucked around day after day, week after week, year after year, never truly answered, and that's because it's totally down to you, the personality, and, and whoever is employing. And that is, what is more desirable? Is it three years' experience in the field, working hard, or is it three years in the form of a degree or an equivalent in the form of, for example, DIMSA? Education over experience is constantly debated. What one should you go for, one or the other? It's very easy to say both. But I'm going to chuck you the question, Maxine. What is more valuable to you when you're looking to employ someone? Uh, hands down, three years of experience. I don't care if they haven't got a bit of paper. 
my basis for that reasoning is the fact that my dad finished school at the age of 14 and he didn't do anything after that. So, you know, my dad, you know, he doesn't read so well. Um, he's not very good at writing either, but he builds a really good zoo and it's all about experience. Do you know what I mean? He has learned so much in the last six years. I'm super proud of him for what he's taken on board as being a, a traditional farmer to now being director of a zoo. I, I feel like it's really unfair that the industry makes people have to have three years dedication on a degree, especially how expensive they are to get a job in a zoo. Because I've got a few keepers that don't have any qualifications at all, but they're mint. I just don't think it's that important. But obviously, from a HR point of view, it's a box tick, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think alongside that, you said it about your, your top-notch keepers, about the skills they have and the, the talents they have. Is there anything for the listeners listening in, that little golden star, I guess you could argue uh, and call it, that they could gain, whether it be a skill, a trade, something which they can put on a CV or a cover letter, to enhance themselves and make them more desirable to you, make them more desirable to get a job ahead of the many others who are contending for those very valuable roles within our amazing collections. So a little golden nugget of that I would look for on a CV as a bonus kind of training. Um, that's a really tough question because, you know, we've had, we get all sorts, you know, we get a lot of keepers applying with first aid things and that's not as important to me because obviously we've already got first aiders on site and obviously they have firearm certificates too. And we've already got firearms people. So if they're applying for a bigger zoo, all of those skills are usually already in-house. Um, so for me, that's probably not as relevant because we usually already have those things. I think, you know, one of the, one of the best kind of things that has become quite apparent with a lot of our newer keepers is they're really, really good at decking out enclosures and they're really good at doing like live planted exhibits. So we've had some brilliant enclosures revamped in the last year. And it's just utilizing the skills of the keepers because, you know, it's having a bit of faith of like, you know, can we redo this tank and make it living? And it's like, okay, have a go. And they're good. They're brilliant. Just let them get on with it. Sometimes they fail, but they teach the other keepers who have never done it before some cracking skills. So I think like looking after live planted exhibits and having that kind of forethought of designing exhibits is a really important key to put on CVs. Some really great pointers there, Maxine. And I kind of guess to wrap up the building of a team and to wrap up this segment, what is it that you would describe your team as as a unit? You know, separately, they've all got their amazing talents. They are unique in their own way. But together, what brings them together as a trait, as a personality? What really sums them up as the amazing team they are? I think they're very forward thinking and you know, we do have a very young team and I'm not saying that that is, that is the trait because obviously it's good to have experience in your team as well, but we're kind of like, you know, how you kind of have like that older generation of keeper who are a little bit set in their ways. We don't have any of them. So we have like the kind of middle-aged keeper who have obviously had to put up with older keepers in the past. So they have a very renewed kind of open, refreshing outlook on things of like, yeah, let's do this you know, very optimistic. And I think our team are super driven and super optimistic to try new things and do new things. And I think that's that's probably it. It's for sure becoming a running theme for this podcast episode. It is very much an up and coming for an, and it has an amazing team by the sounds of things. Northumberland Zoo, what a great addition to this community and uh, long let that carry on and keep growing. So fingers crossed for you. Now, 
diving back in, we're going to head into what we call the big questions. As a part of this podcast, we tackle some of the larger questions, some of the questions that no one really wants to go near. But we'll see how we get on, Maxine, and we'll dive straight in headfirst to number one. Now, number one takes us uh, across the shores all the way to America and a demographic survey they've done of their keeping staff over there. Now, they see a dropout age of the early 30s. Now, we roughly see that over here in the UK, and that's obviously matched through everything from costs through to change in life. Overall, you reevaluate your goals and what you want to achieve in life. So alongside all this, we're not considered a trade. We are labour. And putting that all together, it creates quite a complex situation. So the question I've got for you is, do you ever see this changing? And is there any way we can maybe protect our, our experience, our amazing keepers from leaving the industry and potentially becoming a trade. Yeah, it's really tricky, that one. To be fair, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head of, as to why the reasons people people leave the industry. Um, the only one that you didn't kind of mention there is is, is kind of bullying and, and pressure. That is another reason why people take that little, because they've kind of had enough. They've had about 10 years of, of rubbish, so they've had enough, so they take a break. Sometimes they don't come back. It's tricky because obviously if you do want to start a family, that is that is the age you need to go, and, and you cannot do both. And most zoos, unfortunately, will not support maternity. Um, or the, or they don't want to, or they you know they kind of end up getting phased out, which is a shame. But zookeeping, I would say, is is probably more suited for younger people, kind of sub thirties. It's because it is hard going, unless you get like an easier section where you know you know you're kind of doing light things every day. If you're like working with rhinos every day and who stock things, you know that's hard going. You stay fit, you do feel it a lot more, um, and and it's easy for you to kind of get taken over by the younger kids who kind of come flying in and lifting wheelbars and stuff. So, but you know, naturally, as you progress through zoos, you do want to kind of move up, and as you move up, there's more paperwork and there's more shares. It's natural, isn't it? Obviously, zookeeping is is not a very well paid industry. You know, it isn't. But you can't tell me one zookeeper out there who hasn't had a quality of life. It is an incredibly rewarding position to be in if you're in the if you're in that right position. You know that it, we're so lucky to do what we do and there's no amount of money in the world that can buy what we do. You know, it, even when you have all the money in the world, you know what do you do with it realistically? Once you've done everything and you can afford everything, then it's just boring. At least with zookeeping, you get to spend 8 hours of your days surrounded by animals doing what you want to do rather than getting paid twice as much sitting in an office, you know, and their life is outside of that. But zookeepers' lives is inside of work, which is totally different. But, you know, on that point, though, I do think that a lot of people within the industry do spend too much time at work and they do need to definitely strike a healthy balance between, you know, work and life. Obviously, it is a very dedicated position to be in, but, you know, you shouldn't be having to do overtime every day. You shouldn't have to be coming in on your days off. It is a job and you do need to separate it out because um, you do see a lot of people getting burnt out. Yeah, for sure, Maxine. I could not agree more. Burnout is a massive issue within the industry. And I think creating that balance within life is key, however hard it may be. Now, you'll be happy to know we've conquered number one. Number one's out the way. We now move on to number two. And number two takes us to something brand new for this year. It's the Secretary of State's document. It leads us to a very much a new world for the zoos, for the wildlife parks and the community that we live in. And it's something which hasn't happened for a while. It's, it's very much hopefully going to improve our amazing communities um, and covers a whole range of topics. Now, I want to delve into one in particular, and that's conservation. Now, it states that we can no longer just simply give funds to an organisation to achieve conservation. We have to simply do more. 
we have to show what we're actually doing and the good that our amazing community is achieving. So the question alongside this for you, Maxine, is if you had unlimited funds, what would you do to achieve this? But more importantly, what are you already doing to achieve this goal? Yeah, well, we're um, we're not for profit now. So everything that we earn goes straight back into the development of the zoo. And I think that's kind of really kind of tells you how well we're doing because at the rate we're, we're expanding, it's just because it's just so much money to go back into it, which is great. I definitely think that zoos can do so much more. Zoos are in such an ideal position to do and make a massive impact. The trickiest thing from a conservation point of view is if you are working with field partners or or you know, in situ conservation, it's knowing who to trust. There's a lot of organizations out there that are not necessarily doing much with the money. They're just kind of passing it around between them all and paying themselves rather than actually physically doing anything. So I think that's a really tricky point for zoos to know who to do it. Unless you're one of these big organizations who can afford to send a member of staff out to somewhere and actually carry out the work. It's very, very difficult. Um, so, I mean, we the conservation trusts that we support are bigger organizations so that we know where the money's going what they're doing they send us like updates every month which is amazing so we do like the the snow leopard trust and we're just in talks with uh, dahari who are the ones that do all of the um, bat conservation in the comros so they're they're quite big conservation entities but i think you know just when you look at the industry and you look at some larger zoos and, and how much money they actually contribute when you look at their percentages to conservation i just think it's really poor and that's just my opinion i think it should be better i mean last year if you if you toddled everything up that we kind of spent on conservation it was probably like 300 grand and for such a small zoo that's a considerable percentage of our income but it was doable you know it's not like we're out of pocket now because you know we're i'm trying to plan the next ones you know we we set up a captive uh, harvest mice breeding project which is which was no big deal it was just a dinghy thing because we got harvest mice round up via us so we can just top up the populations which is cool um we also set up our behaviory and we've done the white claw crayfish project as well but like our biggest one was obviously the bats i mean that was a huge project for us and that was purely for conservation because jersey wanted a backup population just in case anything happened to theirs so that is all part of conservation and and larger zoos i get really frustrated about this because larger zoos have the money and they have the resources and they have the space to do projects like that but they're not you know i don't know what their agenda is you know it's not ticking the big five box you know, bats are not, you know, it's putting them on the map and, and people love bats. So those are kind of our main conservation aims. We're bulking out on our native species uh, this year. We're actually, we're, we're working with the Northumberland Wildlife Trust and the Rivers Trust. And we're going to be starting doing water voles soon. They want us to start doing beavers too. So we're going to be doing a lot of native stuff, which is exciting. Yeah, for sure. Sounds absolutely amazing. and really sums up the amazing work already going on within our zoos. You, you've pretty much summed that up, but more so that you don't have to go abroad. You don't have to go to your Africa's, your South America's, your Asia's. You can do it on your doorstep as you're doing and, and do some amazing work. And that's what it's about. It's about conservation all across the globe, including the UK, which sounds absolutely incredible. And on top of that, the community is meant to be, as the word suggests, a community. And it's about partnerships. And as you've just said, alongside the likes of Daryl and so on, zoos are meant to work together as they are already and become stronger as a unit. You know, we are unified for the collective goal. And that's for our animals and the animals' futures. 
as a collective. So, no, a great answer. You'll be happy to know you've conquered number two and achieved that one in full. So thank you very much. Now, number three, that leads us to collection planning. It leads us to something that everyone wants to be involved in, whether it be to simply get their species in the collection through to just seeing the overall plan and the future for your amazing collection, which I think for yourself is exciting. It is very much new and it will be something that everyone wants to be part of, I'm sure, from your end. So the question alongside this is, how is your collection plan different to the rest of the industry? And looking back so far, is there anything you would change within your collection plan? Well, our collection plan, I guess, is quite unique. It's very random. We have a lot of strange eclectic animals here at the zoo for reasons that are not entirely too sure. You know, when you first start off as a zoo, and obviously this was only like, what, eight years ago we got our zoo license, you end up with loads of animals that get just get given to you. So we have got those. Those are like the... Um, the default animals that we had. So you've got like random ex-parrots and meerkats and all that kind of stuff. But our collection plan now is more like I kind of mentioned earlier, is getting species that fit our climate and our natural habitats that we have available and that nicely kind of kind of fit in with our what we've already got. I do sound, sound a bit strange because I lived in the States for 15 years. So we're, we're very kind of like, we like North American animals, which North American animals aren't really that rare, but, you know, they're really cool and they're quite underrepresented. So we've got like your Canadian lynx and we've got your tree porcupines and we've got the raccoons, which are epic and people love them. And I would say that the raccoons are like one of our flagship species, even though they are on the list of invasive species. People travel from London to come and see our group of raccoons because we have 10 and we have the largest enclosure in Europe and it's an epic enclosure when you go there there's just stuff mayhem everywhere they're in the trees they're in the water they're digging over here they're chasing each other you know it's just it's such a fun exhibit and people come to see them and that obviously raises money for other conservation projects I just think it's really weird that they should be kind of just like banned because if we bred them it would be immense you know, so our collection plan is a little bit unusual, but I think the most exciting thing that we'll probably be planning to get in is is some type of bear. And that's because my, my head keeper is, is on the bear working group. So, you know, she specializes in bears and I and I really love bears as well. But it would be a type of bear that suits our climate and habitats that we have. So, you know, we're thinking European browns or um, I would love American blacks because that would totally tick that box. But of course, from a conservation point of view, they're raccoons. If you can attract people in to see these animals, you just put the money somewhere else. You put it into your bats. You put it into your native species. It doesn't really, I don't feel like a collection plan. I don't feel like every single animal on your list should be critically endangered because people aren't interested in the weird little things that are boring, you know, in the nicest possible way. They want to see stuff that they want to see. It's just how you use the money. That's what's important. Yeah, for sure. Great answer. And I love your concept of using what's called invasive species as ambassador animals. You know, your koalas, your raccoons. It's human nature, obviously, to love cute and fluffy. They very much fit that mold as long as you don't overstep the mark. And they're amazing. You know, I can personally say I've worked with koalas absolutely adore them they're absolutely amazing animals really gentle when they need to be have real personalities and they really do capture the imagination and the the eye of our guests so i couldn't agree more i think it's a, a sad situation where some of them are being phased out obviously for certain reasons especially as especially in europe obviously there have been 
escapes and so on, which I know have affected the native wildlife over there. But with these animals, they definitely deserve a voice and you're giving it to them, which is absolutely amazing. And I say, hopefully that will uh, continue for the for the long term. It's just so frustrating because like now with raccoons, you can't do raccoon talks. You can't do raccoon encounters. You can't do anything that promotes them as a species. Nothing, which is just mental. Like I literally get inquiries every day for raccoon encounters. And we weren't doing anything mental because our encounters are not like touchy-feely, let's like cuddle an animal encounters. They're literally like, right, you stand there and you throw that food at them and that is that. So we're not like, you know, extorting them anyways. But, you know, it's just really frustrating that that, you know, that could have been a good 15, 18 grand a year that we could have generated from doing those types of experiences, putting people in touch with wildlife, using that money towards something really beneficial. So I think the whole invasive species thing can just go and disappear. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Is it a real shame? Um, and definitely something which I, I hope is re-looked into because certain species will be lost in the coming years from our collections. And as we're seeing with many species, unless our guests actually get to see them, get to experience them in person, not through a book, you can't truly get that engagement level. And these animals are great ambassadors for their ecosystems as much as their selves. So fingers crossed um, that may change. But no, I couldn't agree more. An amazing animal and uh, definitely one that we, we do want in our zoos. Fingers crossed. Now, you'll be happy to know you've conquered all the big questions. OK, <laughs> you have made it through. We go, though, into the final segment of this podcast. And that is what we call the quick fire round. It can go two ways. It can go as it suggests, as a quick fire round, or it may explode into a wealth of knowledge. So we'll see how we get on, Maxine. Um, and we'll go into number one. Now, number one, very simply, is what is your favourite animal? Red squirrels. Oh, great answer. Why red squirrels? I don't know. I don't know. I just love them. I'm just slightly obsessed. You know, like Doug out of Up. And he's like, squirrel. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just love them. Red squirrels in particular. I did all my like dissertations at college on them. And I just, they used to live around here, but now there's loads of gray squirrels and it just really annoys me. Yeah, for sure. They do seem to be fighting back though, both in the wild, but also in captivity, becoming a very popular site in our zoos as part of reintroduction program. So fingers crossed for the future for quite an amazing animal. Now, number two then, what is the best side of the industry? Best side of the industry? I think it's literally inspiring people. It's literally what it is. It's 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 changing someone's perception. They come into the zoo. I hate bats. Not going in that house. And they come out. And they're like, "This is the best thing ever." I'm buying a bat toy in a nutshell. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great point, not just for our guests, but also for our keepers, for our aspiring and current keepers. Never rule out a taxonomic group. Never rule out a species. Even though you may think, "I want to be a tiger keeper" or "I want to be an elephant keeper," that's amazing. But never rule out species without working with it because you'll never know how truly amazing they are and how much you may love them. So if, whether it be for a guest or for a keeper, you're exactly right. An open approach is key. Now, the next one then is what would you improve within the industry? Oh, this is a really big question. This is not a quick fire question. James. <laughs> I don't know what kind of quick fire question that is. How would I change industry? Uh, hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of things I would do in the industry, but I think you know, I kind of touched on it briefly with conservation. I think we should do more. Zoos are in that position and they have no excuse. We should be doing more somehow. Right, totally. Um, the next one, I'm sorry to say, is definitely not a quick fire. Uh, it's, it's the top tip for well-being slash, slash uh, mental health um, for, for, I guess you could say, the industry, but just in general, really. Yeah, work-life balance, 100%. Work-life balance. You cannot, you cannot sink everything into your zoo. I mean, it's different for me because obviously we own the zoo, but from a member of staff's point of view, a keeper's point of view, like put everything into your zoo and then they suddenly let you go 
then what do you have? You have nothing. So you've got to put yourself first and have a work-life balance. Yeah, great answer and some great tips there. Could not agree more. Now, globally, what zoo would you like to visit and why? Oh, that's a really good question. I always, do you know what? Even when I was a kid, I always wanted to go to Tier, Tier Park Schoenbrunn, which is the first zoo in the world. I think that's the one that's got like all the war damage and stuff on it. I haven't heard that it's like the most amazing zoo in the world, but they have like 1,200 species of animals. It sounds mental. So I just want to go and just see what it's like. And I'd like to go to the zoo in the West and the zoo in the East and see what they look like. It just, I don't know why. It's a bit weird. Yeah, totally. I could not agree more. Europe holds some of the best collections in the world. So a really, really great answer. Now, the next one, Maxine, I need you to put on your mystic hat. I need you to look forwards in time to around 20 to 30 years. Do you still see zoos being the same as we see them today? No, they'll be so much better. God, I hope so. Yeah, and I think if you look back 20 to 30 years already, you can see some massive leaps forward in forms of conservation, welfare, education and so on. And hopefully that will continue. But looking at that question a bit deeper there, Maxine, what one key thing do you think is going to really progress and grow in that amount of time in the future? Uh, definitely the the in-house mentality and the in-house kind of living ethos. I'm hoping that this next generation of keepers is going to push all of that stuff out. And I, I'm hoping it'll be a lot more positive. Uh, I couldn't agree more, Maxine. What a great answer. Now, the next one, we're going to dig a little deeper into your own career, Maxine, into your own journey Throughout your journey so far in this amazing community working, who would you say your idol is within the industry? Yeah, this is a tricky one. And um, immediately I kind of thought, and it did sound a bit weird and a bit stalkerish, but it's probably going to be like the the Whitnalls, you know, like Cam and, and Aaron and, you know, the, you know, the brothers. They are doing amazing things with technology and getting their name out there and they're generating income for their zoo in different ways. And that's really what we want to tap into because I don't want to be a massive zoo attracting mountains of people down here to little quiet Northumberland. You know, I literally want to attract this many people and I would still like to make that much income, but I would like to make income for people that aren't here. And that's through YouTube and social media channels. And they are cracking this concept. So I look at them and I'm like, oh, I need to work harder because I want to be up there with them. Yeah, some very, very kind words there, Maxine. And you're not wrong, setting the bar very, very high. Now, we're on that last question of the podcast. We are very close to the end, Maxine. You've nearly made it all the way through. All I now need you to do, one of the hardest questions of the whole podcast, I now need you to sum up the whole industry for us in only three words. Rewarding, challenging, and frustrating. Three very fitting words to end this podcast. Now, we are at the end. Thank you so much from me and the listeners, Maxine, for sharing your journey and your amazing tales so far. Oh, no worries, James. Thank you so much for having us. And, and it's great to get our voices out there. So thanks for creating this opportunity. I think it's, I think you're going to do really well. Thank you so much, Maxine, for coming on. We've had a great time listening to you. And as I say, it's the true reason behind starting Zookeeping 101 was to get people's stories, voices, and uh, a few of those hard-hitting questions answered. So thank you so, so much on behalf of myself and the listeners I have had a great time listening away. I'm sure the listeners will agree also. And hopefully we'll get you on again very, very soon. Awesome. Cool. Speak to you soon. Speak to you soon, Maxine. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. 
I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.